Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and the main man Jason Lampkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now, one question before we start today. What is in your diary for the second week of February? Perfect. In that case, it's Mojitos with Jason and I in San Francisco for Sasta Annual 2017. Sitting in the sun with Sass legends Tom Tungers, David Scott, Jeff Lawson, drinking Mojitos. What could be better? So if you want to join me for Sasta Annual 2017, then all you have to do is enter the promo code drinks with harry those three words drinks with harry when you purchase your tickets and you'll get check this out 20 percent off your ticket price and a free happy hour of mojito thanks to the kind bank of mr jason lemkin however to the show today and i'm thrilled to welcome robert siegel now robert is a partner at xseed capital one of the leading seed funds in the valley and at xseed rob specializes on you guessed it all things from the wonderful world of sas and he sits on the board of directors of cape productions and cooler zen and rob is currently on the faculty at the stanford graduate School of Business, where he teaches an array of topics that led to his role as the co-president emeritus of Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs. And prior to joining Exceed, Robert was general manager of the Video and Software Solutions Division for GE Security, with annual revenues of $350 million. Before that, Robert was co-founder and CEO of Weave Innovations Inc., which was acquired by Kodak. And if that wasn't enough, Robert also served in various management roles at Intel Corporation, including an executive position in their corporate business development division, in which he invested capital in startups that were strategically aligned with Intel's vision. I'd also like to say a huge thanks to TN Zuora for the intro to Robert today. I so appreciate that. However, it's now time for me to shut up and hand over to Robert Siegel, partner at Exceed Capital. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Robert, so fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to TN Zuora for the intro, but thank you, Robert, for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. It's great to be here. Now, I'd love to get started today with a two to three minute background story on you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS investing. Well, like many venture capitalists, I had a career in operating in companies both large and small. Uh, I ran a division of General Electric. I worked at Intel. I worked at Sun. I also started a company that made the original digital picture frames and sold it to Kodak. Worked for a company that was spun out of Stanford that made image sensors and image processors that got bought by Sony. And back in the day, I wrote software for Commodore 64s and 128s and ultimately PDAs and cell phones with a company we took public in the early 90s called GeoWorks. And about nine years ago, when I was leaving GE and finished running my division there, a friend of mine called and asked if I wanted to be a VC. And I said, hell no, I hate VCs. And 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 it, this was from somebody who was a VC. And he said, well, I have one for you. And Exceed Capital had just been started by my now partner, Michael Boris. The idea in the early days of could you invest in seed stage uh, companies that needed maybe a three quarters of a million dollars US to get going and then keep writing checks in subsequent rounds so that you wouldn't get washed out or diluted as much as angels would. And so Michael and I met, we got along and nine years later, uh, here I am still aspiring to be good at what I do. I'm really intrigued then. What were the big takeaways from working at such behemoth uh, organizations, as you said, they're like Sun Microsystems? Well, I think that many of the skills that are done and required in a startup, uh, which I had the the good fortune of also working in, and in large companies were the same. The strategic thinking, the ability to innovate, make sure that you're pushing technology and boundaries, making sure that you can figure out how to penetrate markets. But with small companies and with startups, oftentimes you end up partnering with large companies. And having been able to be on both sides of of those relationships, when even when I was at Intel, I was in the precursor of Intel Capital, so I was able to make a 
investments from the corporate side. And when I was at GE, I made several acquisitions and the like. You really understand what it's like to be on both sides. And having been a CEO who had started a company and sold it to Kodak, that really allowed me to have an empathy and an appreciation of innovation in both large and small organizations. And, and I want to start then with the, with the seriously meta question for you. You mentioned, obviously, the acquisition with Kodak. And I want to start then by discussing uh, some of the exits. And we've seen some big ones this year in terms of the Marquettos to the Nutanix in the world of SaaS. So my question to you is, have many of the big returns, with those in mind for SaaS startups, have they already happened? At the, at the risk of offending perhaps some of our listeners, I actually believe we're in the second half of the game for SaaS startups. I think that SaaS is going to continue to inv- uh, invigorate and change how corporations and companies deal with each other, how they deal with their customers. You look at the younger generation of people and how they want to interact with companies, and everything is going to be driven through SaaS software and through mobile, etc. But the thing about venture capital is you are looking for being ahead of the curve. And so you want to get the disproportionate returns at a time when everyone else hasn't quite figured it out. At Exceed, we, our venture fund, we use a metric that we call the clever foolish matrix. You want to be at a, in a company that is quite clever, that everyone thinks is foolish, because that allows you to get in front of the curve and really kind of set the pace in the way that Uber was or Airbnb was. And so in the SaaS world, I think what's happening is every major software company is well aware of SaaS and the implications of SaaS to their businesses. So if something starts to take off, acquisitions are happening sooner rather than later. So it's very, very hard, I think, to, to distance oneself from the field without attracting enough attention. What you want to have happen as a CEO of a startup is you wake up and all of a sudden you're huge and every everyone says, oh my goodness, how did that happen? And I think that's much more difficult in, a, in an area like SaaS now, which has become more mature. You know, In my work at Stanford, where I, I'm on the faculty of the Graduate School of Business, I see, teach cases on SAP and Box and several of these other leaders in that space. And everybody kind of knows what's there. So I think the question for SaaS startups is you're going to have to hit your metrics, show high, high growth, de minimis churn, and show that you're really going to pull away from people. Because my fear on SaaS software is that in this clever, foolish matrix that we look at, SaaS software is clever, but everyone knows it's clever. So if that happens, you end up being in a world where returns end up becoming more depressed. Not necessarily that it's bad, but the big blockbusters don't necessarily happen. And you mentioned the importance of metrics there. And we recently had David Scott on the show from Matrix, and he said one of the big metrics that he looks for was negative churn, and then also bookings. Uh, so talk to me about the kind of metrics side for you, and, and the real elements that you hone in on when making prospective investments. Yeah, David's actually, I think, one of my favorite bloggers, and he's so thoughtful with everything that he puts up there. You know, for us, we're investing at the seed stage. We tend to be the first institutional money in. So the metrics that we're looking for when we start, you know, what's the MRR, and more importantly, what's the growth rate, and you're hoping for de minimis churn. And and we're trying to work with the entrepreneurs to make sure in those early days when we're writing that first check, what do they think they're going to get to that they're going to be able to raise the Series A at a, substan- a substantial up round, which the the entrepreneur wants and we also as institutional investors want. And we're a feeder fund to the larger funds. So the metrics of what your MRR needs to be and what your growth rate needs to be, we want people to be coming out of the seed stage at a 150k to 200k MRR, you know, growing 15% month over month and, you know, a churn rate that's 5% or below hopefully over an annual basis. That's where you're going to get something that's really going to break out. And I think the biggest thing that we see in, in our window where we place our investments is that entrepreneurs will 
people come to us and say, oh, I'm going to get to 50K MRR or 75K MRR and then go try to raise the Series A. And what we hear from the larger funds is that's not going to be enough to break through because they'll sit back and wait and to see of all of these hundreds or thousands of SaaS companies, which ones are really going to get the disproportionate returns to bust out. So have you really seen the Series A crunch then in terms of transitioning your SaaS startups to the Series A investors that you hold downstream? I don't know that I would say there's a Series A crunch. I would say that we see a lot of stranded Series A. So that's why we try to work very, very hard with our companies to make sure they're going to hit those metrics ahead of time. I think one of the advantages in the seed space is that if you get good investors, be they institutional or angels, they understand what's required and what the next round of funders are thinking. And so we do see companies that will get stranded if they haven't made enough progress. It's, it's kind of almost easy, as horrible as that sounds, to get to a million dollars of ARR. But that's not going to be enough to get a 5 to $15 million Series A uh, funding done. And so it's not that it's easy, but it's it's undifferentiated. The, un, the, the differentiated companies really bust out and drive growth and hit that top line and really kind of have that intimacy with their customer base that they know they've nailed product market fit and they've got a large enough set of customers that they can figure out how to get to a large uh, ongoing revenue stream. Now, this is a controversial one, but you illustrated a relatively formulaic approach to transitioning from seed to series A in the 150 to 250 MRR. Would you say then that it would be feasible to call SaaS investing spreadsheet investing? I wouldn't call it spreadsheet investing because in the end, investing really depends upon the entrepreneur and the quality of him or her to attract talent, attract capital, and separate customers from their money. So the good news about SaaS investing, however, is that it's very transparent. There's no wondering what the next round of, of investors are going to want because it's a very quantifiable business. So I wouldn't call it spreadsheet investing because what it takes to build a company, what it takes to build an, an amazing organization goes beyond the spreadsheet. But the good news is from a business metrics perspective, it's very well understood. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's actually attractive. You don't have to be wondering whether or not the next investor is going to like you or is going to like your business or is going to like the market. If you can show a growing business hitting certain numbers, you're in a pretty good uh, place to make sure you can raise that next round of funding. Absolutely. And talking about kind of growing companies there and, and the meta picture of the ecosystem, we discussed potentially the consolidatory nature of the ecosystem and earlier acquisitions happening. I'm intrigued then how you think companies both large and small will need to react then on say a more strategic level so let's start with the larger how do you think this affects their approach well, I think a larger company, if the, that larger company comes from the tech industry, will tend to understand that in, in acquiring a company, that you're going to be acquiring the product, the technology, and the team. And so you want to see those capabilities integrated into the organization so that the large company doesn't become stayed and doesn't become ossified. And so ensuring that you, the, that you, you, you buy the right team and you hold on to them and make sure that that team can be successful inside of your organization is one of the key metrics of success for acquisitions and the like. Similarly, if you're a small company coming in, you can't look at these larger organizations and think of them as dinosaurs. Think of them as people who are going to die because the people who run those businesses are actually quite smart and they're actually very much awake right now as to what's going on. You look at the transitions at companies like Microsoft, Oracle, etc. They are very aware 
of the new technology and how it's coming out to bear. And they've been educated by many companies such as Box and other SaaS companies, Salesforce, et cetera, that have had success. So I think that if you're a larger firm, you need to make sure that your radar is always on high. And if you're a smaller firm, you need to make sure that you can understand and have empathy for that other company to figure out where winning relationships might be able to happen. In, in terms of then for the smaller ones there, as you said, how does their approach change then coming into this uh, SaaS environment? Who are the acquisition targets? Well, one of the key things that, that, a, that a CEO and a leadership team needs to look at uh, is, can a company stay large and independent on its own? And if so, that's the holy grail. That's nirvana, when you can really build something that puts a dent in the universe. But there may, in fact, come a point where there's a natural owner of the asset. And so one of the things that a leadership team and a startup needs to be aware of is that if an acquisition offer comes in, does it make sense to accept it or not at a moment in time? And as you design and build your company, we will often talk about this notion of feature product company. We see companies that will come in here to pitch us at Exceed, and we think it's a feature that will naturally slipstream into a workday or something else, or it might even be a product. But we're looking to invest in something that can become a big independent company. And entrepreneurs need to be intellectually honest with themselves in that what they're developing, is it really going to basically, is the natural owner of the asset going to be a larger organization, or can somebody stay strong and independent on their own? And that happens, by the way, at large scale. Let's look at LinkedIn. If you listen to what Reed and Jeff said, their biggest issue was they didn't think that they could make it long-term on their own. They thought they needed to be a part of something that was much larger. And I think in the SaaS space where you've got all of these players and all of this activity and everyone's watching everything else, you've got to be very intellectually honest to know whether or not you've got a part of the sandbox that's truly unique, that is something that you could really own and that you can defend against people who will try and come and take that space away from you. I'm so pleased you said that about part of the sandbox then, because how should entrepreneurs then be thinking in terms of their attitude to competition and to change in this environment that we're inhabiting now? Well, first and foremost, every good leader thinks that their competition should die, uh, just a bloody and gory death, because it takes that kind of just, you know, vicious competition to try to achieve something great. And all the great leaders in business, we're all fiercely competitive people. So you want to be able to be thinking that, that it, whatever you're building is your God-given right to own, and anybody who's trying to challenge you for it is trying to take food off your table for your family. And so that same kind of just highly competitive nature, that is unfortunately what it takes to win in, in a lot of these highly competitive markets. And so I think you want to always be aware and most importantly, always be paranoid about your competition. You know, I used to work for Andy Grove and he taught us that only the paranoid survive. And so you cannot be dismissive about the competition of, oh, their product isn't as good or their people aren't as good because you know what? The best teams and the best products aren't always the ones who win. So if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be thinking very, very clearly about if you were attacking your own company, how would you do it? You know, if you could you know, you can devise your own defenses if you understand what your own weaknesses are, because then you can shore up your own weaknesses. Are there holes in your product? Do you have channel issues? Do you have go-to-market strategies? Do you have the right team in place? Those are things that as a leader of, a, of any entrepreneurial venture and in a SaaS company in particular, given the competitive nature of the market, you need to be on top of it at all times. That's very interesting you said about kind of only the paranoid survive and the importance of paranoia in competitive markets. I, I actually always tell startup founders the opposite. I always use the reference of a rowing boat in the 
the minute you look over to the opposition, you start falling behind and sinking and to focus on your own product and your own roadmap. To what extent would you say then focus on your own plays a role? There's a very interesting philosophy behind this. One set of entrepreneurs will say, ignore the competition and stay focused on your knitting. Uh, The challenge with that is that if you do that, you might miss what's happening out in the market. And I think great entrepreneurs are always seeking to understand what's happening out there. They're gathering data and gathering inputs. And a great entrepreneur will render his or her own opinion, but will not do it based upon divining the future, but will based upon it based upon inputs as to what he or she has seen in the market. So I think great entrepreneurs should always be scanning at all times of what's going on. Now, the paranoia thing, you know, maybe that's just how I was trained at Intel. But one of the things that Andy did was he always had us kind of fiercely paranoid that this great thing that we had, we might lose it. And that created a sense of urgency and drive. I think great leaders can create sense of urgencies and drive different ways. But I think what I will often see is a dismissive nature of the competition or just, oh, they're not very good or the, their method for doing these things may, you know doesn't work and ours is better. And I think the, the a healthier skepticism, a healthier worry about what could go wrong can force entrepreneurs to keep raising their game. And so I, I hear your point about you know when all eight oars are hitting the water at the same time and it's kind of like everyone's in the flow, that's great. But I think sometimes you might want to be aware as to what's happening in the broader world around you so that you can make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. And in terms of kind of being aware of what's happening in the broader world around you, for, for SaaS entrepreneurs now in today's environment, how do you think to the ecosystem that we just described in terms of consolidatory nature changes how they should search for investors then moving forward? The sooner people can get to profitability, the better, because then you'll control your own destiny and you, you'll need investors less and less. And I know that in the SaaS market, that can be a real challenge because you're investing up front in, in, in collecting a lot of those economic rents in the future. You know, I teach a case on Zora and team comes to our classes, and that's one of the things that they've been able to successfully do and build a whole business around the subscription economy. Uh, but to the extent that you can show that you're not hemorrhaging lots of cash, to the extent that you can show that you've got you know, your, your LTV to CAC ratio is still a good, a good way of measuring your business and you've got the right ratio of that number, you will be able to stand apart from other people. Uh, right now, we're in the back half of a standard boom and bust cycle in Silicon Valley. And so the metrics are, you know, they do matter and it's harder to get that next round of funding. So if you could be thinking about how you can control your own destiny, that will give you many more degrees of freedom. And then you can be talking to investors about growth strategies. You can be talking to investors about how you're going to take a disproportionate share of the market. And you're playing offense as opposed to, well, I'm just churning money and burning money with the hope that something will pay off later. Oh, Robert, I'm so glad I asked that question because you brought up two points, which are particular passion points for me now. Really, I'm, I, I think I need to get out more than it. It excites me so much. But, no, seriously, I, when I'm about to say what I'm about to say, you'll know what a loser I am. I'm super excited by optimizing payback periods. Yeah. So, so how do you approach payback periods? And I've often heard investors say uh, 18 months is perfect, 24 is too long. Others have varying time frames that is optimal in terms of kind of the payback period retention Mm -hmm. elements. What's your take on optimizing the payback period? Well, I think you want to optimize the payback period as you're starting to hit the growth part of your curve. In the early days, it's less important as you're trying to figure out product market fit. But once you figure out kind of what the product is and 
the exact need that it's meeting in the market. The ability to go out and have your unit economics say, we can show a customer and show investors that we're going to get paid back in the 12 to 18 months, that goes back to that point of being truly differentiated. Because there are a lot of companies where if it's a 24-month payback period or longer or 21 months, you start to get into the system of what happens when you know there's a, a hiccup in the global economy? What happens when there's like perhaps a stodgy election in the United States? What happens when the courts in the UK decide we're gonna they're gonna weigh in on Brexit and what sort of volatility that might create? Because business leaders need stability, right? Stability is good for business and that's good for entrepreneurs. And so to the extent that you're, you know, the promised land and the pot of gold is further and further out, it gets harder and harder for you to control your own destiny. So optimizing payback periods, I think, is very important. And it becomes more important just after you hit that product market fit. In the early days, it's less important. You know, you make sure you've got the right product to meet the customer need. But once you have it, make sure that the economics of your business make sense and then optimize like hell. And once the economics of your business makes sense, I'm intrigued to hear what you think. You said about LTV to CAC ratio there. What to you is a good LTV to CAC ratio? You know, if I lick my thumb and put it up in the air, I'm going to say three to one. Uh, You know, some people want to see four to one. Some people are happy with two to one. You know, it's a distribution. A lot of it's going to look in the other uh, uh, aspects of your business. There's no single metric. There's no single figure of merit in SaaS investing. You want to look holistically at things. But three to one seems to be kind of like, like a, a, a good mean from which to anchor and adjust. Absolutely. That's what David Scott said. Uh, no, well, he's uh, a smart guy. <laughs> he's a smart guy. So I didn't tell you that first, but you got it. Uh, yeah. But in terms of next, I want to discuss the 60 second Sasta. So this is one of my favorites. It's a quick fire round. I say a short statement and then you yep. hit me with your immediate thoughts. Sound good? Sounds perfect. So let's do strategic investors thoughts. Okay. At later stages, horrifically bad at early stages. Uh, they, them taking a stake in your company does not align incentives. And what do you know now? that you wish you'd known when you'd started now you can either answer this two ways either with your journey as an entrepreneur and as an operator or as your journey with xseed if you're lucky life is long there are good days and bad days and uh, your sense of self-worth is not tied up into what's in your bank account what's the biggest challenge for you then in those bad days with xseed today not feeling like a loser because we haven't funded Facebook. And then let's do your favorite SaaS resource or reading material. What are your favorites? We mentioned David Scott. Uh, D- David and Tom's writing, you know, from, from Redpoint, those are the kind of my two go-to sources. Uh, I, I think you can find 90% of what you need in everything that they write online. And then Greenfield Opportunities in SaaS, where are you excited by? Uh, follow the entrepreneur, especially right now. At a time when uh, we're going through platform changes, it's the entrepreneurs who are seen around corners and seeing things that others aren't seeing. That's when you want to follow entrepreneurs. I mean, it's kind of always true. The coefficient of that variable right now is significantly higher than in normal times. And so I don't know of any particular area. If I were good on that, I wouldn't be a VC, right? Slimy scum sucking VCs, we don't know the future. The entrepreneurs know the future. And when you're getting this, these muddy times like we have right now, listen very closely to what the great entrepreneurs are saying. So we're trying to, you know, basically unlearn all that we have learned at Exceed right now and trying to kind of stop ourselves and say, when someone comes in with something that we would normally be very dismissive of, forcing ourselves to say, has something changed? Interesting, uh, interesting attributes uh, to the VC ecosystem there. We, we, <laughs> no, but we've, analy- we've analyzed the SaaS macro uh, and we will do after this question. But I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts then on the wider VC ecosystem from a meta view today. 
I am more excited and optimistic than I've been in probably nine years. If you look at the cyclicality of venture capital and of technology platforms, the real monster breakthrough things come at the end of a cycle. You know, in 2002, we were finishing the first dot-com bust, and, and Google was doing well, but no one knew how well. Salesforce was doing okay, but like Facebook hadn't even been started. And the companies that were funded in that window became the monsters of 2007 to 2009. And similarly, the companies that were funded in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, became the monsters of 2013 to 2015. So I'm thinking that right now, basically everything's hit the reset button. And so no one really knows what's coming next. People can talk about SaaS and virtual reality and all of this stuff. And the bottom line is nobody has a friggin' clue as to what's really going to be the monsters of the next five to seven years. Now, the reason I think that that's great as a venture capitalist is that means everyone's hit the reset button, right? It's back to everyone's back to, to the start of the game and the referee's blowing the whistle and the game starts to flow. And so these are the the moments you live for as an investor when you get some of these turbulent times and no one's quite sure what's next you know don't you know it doesn't matter what people write about and when they prognosticate about the future no one has a freaking clue as to what it is follow the entrepreneurs especially right now and then we're, we're moving out of the quick fire now but go staying on that following the entrepreneur i'm intrigued how that impacts your view of valuation when investing them with the potential for mega returns like we suggested is valuation a core principle that you stick to when making the investment yes and i'm going to put an asterisk next to it. The, the thing about venture capital is this is a business where you are looking to make a 10 to 20x return on an on a single investment because of all the ones that aren't going to go well. And so at Exceed, especially as seed investors, you know we have an economic model that uh, is driven by the ability to get the kind of returns that we want to get. Because if I get a 5x or a 7x, my limited partners are happy with me, but not that's not why I get a paycheck. That's not why we play the game for the, to get the appropriate risk-reward program. Now, what I will say is a company is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it, not a penny more or a penny less. So we would never tell an entrepreneur your company's not worth that because if someone's willing to pay it, your company is worth that. And by the way, if Godzilla walks in the in the door, you're going to be a little less uh, uh, sensitive on valuation if you found like that great entrepreneur. But in the end, this is a business where investing, you're supposed to stay disciplined. You're not supposed to throw good money after bad. The, the, the venture fund with the best returns, Sequoia, is probably probably the most disciplined one in our business. And so we tend to think that that's a mantra that makes sense. And so the, the only question to ask between an entrepreneur and, a, and an institutional investor is, can the deal that get negotiated, can that deal that get done, do both sides feel good about it? And if both sides can feel good about it, then you smile, you shake hands, you go forward, and you try to help the entrepreneur be successful. And if there isn't an overlap in the Venn diagram, no worries. You smile and you shake hands and you hope, you go your separate ways. And as an investor, you're saying, gee, I hope that wasn't Google. <laughs> I hope I didn't let Google walk out the door. And most times, by the way, it's not. Most times, I've got a few that I let walk out the door that I shouldn't have for a variety of reasons. But, you know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. But most times when you lose a deal, this is a business where, you know, you lose seven of every 10 times or six of every 10 times. And then, and then finishing today on, on that kind of shaking the deal and being happy about it, how do you view current SaaS valuations in today's market? We've seen valuations become far more reasonable in the last six to 12 months. And when I say reasonable, reasonable for us as institutional investors, reasonable is probably too much 
of a normative expression, but valuations that are uh, get closer to a win-win for us and for the entrepreneur. Uh, and I think that started you know about 15 months ago when we saw the compression in the late stage markets. And I, and I think data showed that that information was perfect, and that squeeze in the in the Series D, Series Z rounds, you know, quickly that information flowed through transparently to the seed rounds, and so you saw a pullback in investing. You saw and that then that followed with valuations settling down a bit. Uh, right now, we're seeing great deals of good prices with great entrepreneurs, and not ones where we're able to take advantage of the of the entrepreneur, but more where we can get to that win win in a deal structure that wins for us and wins for the entrepreneur, and both sides can feel good going forward. Well, Robert, it's been such a pleasure and such fun to have you on the show today. Uh, so grateful to Tien for the introduction, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so it's a real honor to be here. What a fantastic guest Rob was and so brilliant to hear his incredible journey with Exceed. Now, if you love the show today and want to join us at Sasta Annual 2017 with hundreds of incredible investors like Rob, then all you have to do is enter the code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, when you purchase your Sasta Annual 2017 tickets. And the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lemkin will not only give you 20% off the ticket price, but check this out, you'll also get a free happy hour of mojitos with me. It'd be so fantastic to see you there and I so appreciate all your support for the show and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.